Today we have something very special going on. We have a special guest with us, a good friend of mine, uh, Pastor Lee Cummings. And Pastor Lee, I've known Pastor Lee for, I don't know, a couple decades now, longer than that, really. And uh, he's a uh, been a pastor, uh, started Radiant Church in Michigan. It's a thriving church, influential church of thousands in Michigan, and then also oversees the Radiant Network, which has uh, got tons of churches that they are uh, leading and influencing and, and in their network, and so many things. Written uh, several books, of which the last one I just read last week is excellent. Uh, unfortunately, UPS didn't get us the books here on time, but um, we will uh, be uh, making those available later on. Excellent uh, stuff on the Holy Spirit. Uh, can't wait to get that into your guys' hands. So many things I could say uh, to give you an introduction to Pastor Lee, but I just really want to say something I believe is more important than all of that. And uh, for me personally, Pastor Lee's been a good friend, uh, a mentor, a pastor, an older brother in the faith. Um, but I, I could even take it further than that because every time I'm around Pastor Lee, uh, every time I'm, I hear him preach, I want to read my Bible more. I want to seek Jesus more, I want to pray more, and I want to seek after revival. And I don't know what better compliment I could give anybody than that. And so would you guys give a warm welcome to Pastor Lee as he brings the word this morning. Good morning. I hope you don't mind, but I sent weather from Michigan on ahead uh, this morning for you all, so... Uh, my wife and I, Jane, uh, we live in Kalamazoo, Michigan. Anybody ever been to Kalamazoo? Oh, a few people. All right. I come from a dry and weary land where we like the Detroit Lions. So I heard there's a football game today. Is, there, is that true? Is there something going on? Uh, <laughs> truth be told, we were on the airplane coming here, and in the row behind us, there were, uh, <laughs> there were Chiefs fans flying in from Dallas, and then there were Steelers fans sitting together uh, with terrible towels and their Steelers hats on. And I thought, if these people can sit in the same row together, there's hope for America after all. I mean, I mean, without it breaking out into a massive fight. So uh, it's an honor to be here. I love your pastor. I, uh, like he mentioned, I've known Sean uh, probably 25 years. And uh, I remember when he was dreaming, him and Becca were dreaming about planting and starting a church, uh, the, just the groundswell that was taking place in their heart. And uh, this is a, a joy for me to be able to be here and to see the fruit of that and to see what God has done over the last several years. And uh, I'll tell you also, let me just say that uh, the, the presence of the Lord and the worship here is remarkable. Uh, it is excellent. It's remarkable. And that's not true every place. Uh, I, I get to travel around a fair bit, and uh, this is, it feels like home. Yeah, I can sense the presence of the Lord here and the hunger of the people, because you had to drive through some slick roads to get here this morning. So uh, I, I believe the Lord is going to bless you with a Kansas City Chiefs win because of that uh, tonight. So, <laughs> Actually, so my wife and I, truth be told, my wife and I uh, lived in Kansas City for two years, so in the early 90s, we lived in Blue Springs. We were youth pastors in Blue Springs, and that set off a, a set of uh, connections by which we actually became friends. And so I lived here during the Joe Montana era when he was the quarterback. And if you're under 30, you're like, who's Joe Montana? Don't worry about it. He was really nobody. Uh, <laughs> significant. But uh, 
So it's fun to come back here and, and to be in Kansas City. We have a lot of great friends here. And I want to share a message with you this morning called New Wine, Fresh Oil, and Old Fire. New Wine, Fresh Oil, and Old Fire. One of the assignments that God put on my life years ago when I was a, a teenager, uh, growing up and spending a lot of time in my grandparents' home, was the Lord called me to stir revival in the hearts of the church in my generation. And the reason for that is my grandparents, who were just incredibly godly people, he, you know, Sean mentions when he's around me, it makes him want to read the Bible and pray more. And I mean, that is an incredibly high compliment. That is how my grandparents were in my life. They were uh, itinerant evangelists. My grandfather worked at General Motors for 30 plus years of his life, but they traveled around and preached and sang and were part of Southern Gospel Quartets and things like that. As a young man growing up in our homes, I grew, I grew up hearing stories of revivals because my grandparents, when they were 18, 19 years old, were actually part of one that took place in the Detroit area, just an explosion of God's spirit upon a particular church that then swept across the nation. It was called at that time the latter rain outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Uh, their church had services for three years every single day. Thousands and thousands of people that were born again, saved. And I grew up sitting, listening to my grandparents tell stories, not only about those type of meetings, but being in worship services where they would, the worship leader would tell everybody to be quiet and the whole room would go silent just like this, but they would hear angelic choirs singing in the top of the rafters of the 3000 seat auditorium. And they would sit there for 45 minutes listening to angelic choirs, stunned by what they're experiencing. And that set me on a course as a young man to read more stories and more books about the things that God had done in the past, where it was as if heaven broke in to the earthly world and culture and realm and lit the heart of the church back on fire with the reality that Jesus really is a resurrected son of the living God, that he really did do the miracles that he did, that the book of Acts really culminated in the gospel sweeping over the entire face of the earth. That's why we're here today. And that Jesus really does want to do those things again. Uh, I grew up reading about the Welsh revival. I grew up reading about the Pentecostal Revival. I grew up reading about the first and the second great awakening and John Wesley and George Whitfield and Charles Finney and grew up reading stories about the evangelical awakenings on American universities that took place in the 40s and in the 50s across America and Billy Graham crusades uh, that many of you may have watched on television where literally he preached to more people on the face of the earth than any other human being did and saw more people come to the Lord than any other evangelist did. And what that did was it set on the inside of me both a love and appreciation for what God had done in the past, but an incredible hunger for, for God to do it again. And that was the prayer of my heart as a 19, 20 21-year-old youth pastor, leader, who was very familiar with what God had done in the past. It was like, God, do it again. And so when I read this text, and I'm going to read a few verses here from Habakkuk chapter 3, when you hear the words of the prophet say the very things that were in my heart and I believe are in the heart of a lot of people in these days, 
where we're crying out to God and saying, God, we know what you've done in the past. Do it again. My heart resonates with that. Let me just read these few verses. It says, a prayer of Habakkuk, the prophet, according to Shigenoth, O Lord, I have heard the reports of you and your work, O Lord. Your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of years, revive it. And in the midst of years, make it known. In your wrath, remember mercy. One translation says it like this. It says, Lord, we've heard all of the stories of what you've done before, and our heart cries, oh God, do it in our day. Do it in our day. I don't know if, if you feel this way, but in my heart, the last two years have revealed to me the weakness and the brokenness of our culture. I mean, when a pandemic sweeps across the globe, uniting a globe. It's the, by the way, it's the first thing, it's the first global event that is taking place in which every single person on the globe has been touched by. It's the first time that's happened since the Tower of Babel. So what we just witnessed was a global event that united the whole nation and the whole world, really, in seeing the brokenness of our world. And then it came to our own shores. We've seen it in the political realm. We've seen it in the social justice and the racial uh, tension. We've seen it in the economic. We've seen it in every sphere of society, the brokenness of our culture, and yet it's in the face of the fact that we have more money, we have more technology, we have more travel, we have more access to information than we've ever had before. All of the things that we have been told for about 150 years since Dewey and the, human, the rise of humanism in America, we've been told once we get to these mile markers, we will no longer have wars, we're no longer gonna have violence, we're no longer gonna have crime, we're no longer gonna have division. It's going to be utopia, and yet we have all of those things, and yet we're more divided, we're more spiritually bankrupt and emotionally worn and torn than we have ever been before. And what that does in my heart is it says, God, we need you. What we need is a move of God in our day. I want it for my kids. I want it for my grandkids. I want it for, I want it for selfish reasons. I want to see it myself. I want to see what really happens when God sovereignly by his grace and by his power and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit breaks into a generation and takes all of its idols, throws them on their face, and fascinates an entire generation with the beauty and the reality of Jesus Christ. What can really happen when that happens, when all of the idols of our culture, our money, our sex, our consumerism, and even our sports and our intellect and academic, when all of that is like the statues of Dagon that fall on their face, and we just realize Jesus is more than a historical figure. He really is the God-man who came, who died, who rose again, and is seated at the right hand of God the Father. And we sense the weight of his presence moving across a generation. Habakkuk longed for that, and I long for that. I believe that it is exactly what we need, and I believe it is what heaven has scheduled for our day. It's what I live for. It's, it's, I have the privilege of overseeing churches across America and in different places and leading a church that my wife and I planted 25 years ago. And uh, when we started Radiant Church, we, we started in the middle of nowhere, a little town called Richland, population 1,400. 
a flashing red light and a post office. And the only place to rent was a school, and the school had a cafetorium, which is not quite a cafeteria and not quite an auditorium. They combined the two, and uh, we could rent that. And we were 25 and 24 years old. We didn't know what we were doing. We had no money, no people, no experience, no building in a town with no people. That is a setup for revival if there's ever been one. And the mascot of the school that we started in was the Blue Devils. And so when you walked into the building directly over the door of the room that we met in, it said, welcome to the Devil's Den. (laughs) So, Sean, you think you got it tough. I mean, but what we have seen God do over the last 25 years is nothing short of miraculous. We've seen thousands of people born again and saved, and we've been able to plant dozens of churches and, and, uh, and impact our city. Now we have three locations across our city, and that's not glory to man. That is not natural. That, that requires a supernatural orchestration of the Lord, and we're fully aware of that, that we are people that are living in the midst of a micro-revival, and we're along for the ride. What would happen if a generation, if a group of people, if the church of Jesus Christ was no longer ignorant of what they didn't know, because you know Hosea says, my people are, they perish for a lack of knowledge. What if we became people who weren't just open to God moving, but we became people that contended for God to move in our generation? Well, I think it requires three things. I think it requires new wine, fresh oil, and old fire. And so I want to share these. I want to propose to you today that these things are well within our reach if we will set our hearts on them. Number one is it requires new wine. What is new wine? A new day requires a new outpouring of his spirit. In the book of Acts chapter 2, which I, I love the book of Acts, I read it about every month because I never want my heart to become stale and stagnant. I always want to remind myself where we came from. And if you want to know where you came from, you came from the book of Acts. That's in your DNA. It's in your genetic code. If you're born again, you have the Holy Spirit dwelling on the inside of you. If you have the Holy Spirit dwelling on the inside of you, the same Holy Spirit that was poured out in Acts chapter 2 is the same Holy Spirit that's on the inside of you, and he wants out. Acts chapter 2, it says, as the Holy Spirit was poured out and they were speaking in tongues and prophesying, it said that the others, the people that were there surrounding, they mocked saying, they are filled with new wine. They meant it as a slanderous statement. They're filled with new wine, but in actuality, they were right because Peter stands up with the 11, he lifts up his voice, and he says, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let it be known to you and give ear to my words today. These people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is that which was prophesied by the prophet Joel when he said in Joel 2, in the last days, declares the Lord, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Whenever God pours out his spirit in a fresh new way, it has the effect of new wine because it causes God's people to come under the influence, the intoxicating influence of heaven instead of being drunk by the spirit of the age. Now, I know nobody in this room or nobody online has ever been drunk because we're all saints in this room. 
And so I'm, I'm, I'm going to describe to you what happens when people out there, you know, Steelers fans, when, when they get drunk, here's what happens. You take in a substance, and as you're, you're drinking it or smoking it, you become intoxicated, which means you come under the influence of it, and it affects the way that you see, it affects the way that you act, it affects the way that you think, and you will do things and say things and go places under the influence that you would never do in your right mind. That's what people act like when they're drunk. Just write that down. So if you ever run into somebody like that. So what does it mean when Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 5, do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit? What is he talking about? He's talking about you and I coming under a sovereign influence of the Holy Spirit in such a powerful way that it affects the way that we see, it affects the way that we speak, it affects the way that we act, and it causes us to have a courage and a boldness that we would never have without it. That's what we see in the book of Acts. We see the the church. Think about the, the early disciples, you know, Peter, James, and John, and, all, and the other 11, that just a few days earlier had abandoned Jesus, just a few days earlier had run for the hills, denied even knowing him. And now they're hiding out in an upper room trying to figure out what are we going to do? Jesus is gone. They just spent 40 days with Jesus, and Jesus tells them in Acts chapter 1, right before he's taken up, he says, I know I've called you to go into all the nations, but don't leave Jerusalem until you receive the promise of the Father. And they're like, what's the promise? You'll know. Go to prayer. So they prayed, and then they received the power of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus had told them in Acts 1, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you shall receive dunamis power from on high, and then you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And so they were fearful and hiding and cowardly until they received the power of the Holy Spirit, and then they became courageous, and they became bold, and they became prophetic, and instead of hiding, they exploded into their communities, cultures, their Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the world. And think about what, in, when you read, next time you read the book of Acts, think about this. They did all this without seminary degrees. They did all this without trains, planes, or automobiles. They did it without the printing press. They did it without Bibles. They did it without Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. They did it without Google. How do you do anything without Google? They did it without smartphones. They didn't have any of the modern conveniences that you and I have right now that we rely so heavily upon, and they're great tools. But listen, they didn't have any of that. But by the time we get into the teens of the book of Acts, they are described by people who are antagonistic against the church. Here's how they describe Christians. These are the ones who are turning the world upside down. Woo! turning the world upside down. Can you imagine if you put live stream capabilities, if you put smartphone, social media, printing press, Bibles, transportation in the hands of the apostles, what they would have done with the Holy Spirit plus that? 
They would have shook the globe. Can I just tell you, at the end of the age, God is going to shake the globe because now he's got a people that have all of those things, but he's going to add an outpouring of the Holy Spirit at the end of the age in a magnitude that we've never seen before, and we're going to see Acts 29 played out. You get to the, in your Bibles, you read up to Acts 28, there's no amen at the end of that book, and the reason is God is still writing the book of Acts, and you are one of the main characters but it's going to require an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And part of that outpouring is going to change the way that we think. New wine means that we're going to require, it's going to require a new paradigm and a new way of thinking. The church, we've got to think differently. In Matthew 9, 17, Jesus said, you don't take new wine and put it into old wineskins. And what's a wineskin? A wineskin is the way that we think. And so what I have come to the conclusion of over the last several months as, you know, as a pastor, you, we, like everybody, we're business owners, moms, dads, everybody else, we've all had to think differently. And one of the things that the Holy Spirit spoke to me, I think it was in June of 2020, when I realized this was going to be a longer journey, is the Lord's, the Holy Spirit said this to me that, Cultural Christianity is dead. Cultural Christianity, where people just go to church because it's the right thing or it's because that's where everybody goes. Cultural Christianity, look at you guys this morning. You had to have four-wheel drive faith to get to church. I mean, you had to want to be in church. It wasn't just because, oh, that's what we do. It'd be a lot easier to just sit at home It'd be a lot, a lot easier to just, you know, watch the pregame of the pregame of the pregame of the pregame and call this a holiday. But there's a hunger that is growing in the church, and it requires a new way of thinking. You see, if you're not going to live under the influence of the Holy Spirit, I believe in the last days we're going to see so many people that come under the influence of an unholy spirit a spirit of this age that is already at, the, at work in the sons of disobedience. You see, there's no demilitarized zone. This is what we all have to come to a reality is. I think in the past, there has been a mentality that even among pastors and church leaders who are building churches, we have a cruise ship mentality. And so we want to make church the funnest, the most entertaining, the you know, the shuffleboard, the pools, the excursions, and hey, come on over to my cruise ship. And so everybody jumps into church and pastors are trying to make it fun and they're trying to make it exciting and exhilarating to get the market share. And people are showing up with their Tommy Bahama and their flip-flops and their little you know, beach bags. And it's like, oh, this is great. I'll come to this cruise ship for a while. <coughs> but we made a mistake because the church was never meant to be a cruise ship. The church was meant to be a battleship. That means exchange your Tommy Bahama for some camo and kick off your flip-flops and put some combat boots on, combat boot faith, and take your post on the battleship because we're moving out in the direction of demolishing strongholds, pushing back the darkness, fighting for a generation, crying out to heaven for God to pour out his spirit upon us, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against the church that Jesus builds. And that's the type of church we want to be. E.M. Bounds, who's one of, the, one of my favorite authors, writes, wrote a lot of books on prayer. He said, what the church needs today is not more machinery or better, not new organizations or more and novel methods, but men whom the Holy Ghost can use. 
Men of prayer, men of mighty in prayer. The Holy Ghost does not flow through methods, but he flows through men. He does not come on machinery, but on men. He does not anoint plans, but men, men of prayer. And he goes on to say this, man is looking for better methods. God is looking for better men. He's looking for a people who will say, God, I'm grateful for all the privileges. I'm grateful for the tools. I'm grateful for the life that I have, but I want more. I'm hungry for more. I want to see you move in my generation. I, I literally, when I talk about revival to students, college students, I see their eyes just get huge as I begin to describe things that took place in previous revivals. And they'll like, that really happened? I'm just like, yeah, that really happened. Charles Finney <coughs> was on a train that went through Rochester, New York in the 1880s, 1860s. And there were factories in Rochester, and he sent a man who was his intercessor, whose last name was Nash, two weeks ahead of time to pray and intercede that God would plow up the, the ground. It was considered one of the hardest soils and territories in, a, in the nation at that time. So Nash went there and prayed. Charles Finney shows up on a train, and as the train comes through Rochester, people in the factory do not even know that he's there or who he is, but a spirit of conviction swept across the factory and people shut down their machines and began to weep and did not even know why. They had to shut down the shift. People came out of the factories. They immediately went into a church service and 250 people got right with Jesus that afternoon and that factory was shut down for weeks as a revival moved across Rochester, New York. What would happen in Kansas City if a people prayed and believed that God could move like that? What could happen in this community, in Liberty? What could happen small towns <coughs> all over Missouri and all over Kansas, all over America? Kalamazoo, we're contending for that. Kalamazoo is the most liberal city per capita in, in the Great Lakes region. We voted for Bernie Sanders. I mean, that's, I'm, I'm not even trying to get political. I mean, but that's just crazy. It's like, what in the world? It's like our largest spiritual demographic is 60% of, our, of our, our city describes himself politically or religiously as none. They have no religious affiliation. And a lot of people are like, well, why would you plant a church there? It's because that's the harvest field. I'm believing that God's going to move like he did in Rochester, New York, in Kalamazoo, Michigan, and in Liberty, in Kansas City. And what would happen if a 1,000 cities, small and big, all across America began to experience that level of an outpouring. Let me tell you how it's going to happen. It's going to happen when we, as the people of God, yeah, thank you. When we pray and we ask God and we say we're not content with just life as usual. We're not content with just going through the motions, going through prayer, living nice little lives, praying cute little prayers, and uh, building nice little buildings. It's when we say, no, God, we are here to see your kingdom come. So it's going to take new wine. It's going to take fresh oil. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 8 says, We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. Notice it says we're pressed, but we're not crushed. This is language that 
is used by olive farmers. Because if you have ever been to the land of Israel, there are a lot of olive trees and a lot of olive groves. It's where the anointing oil would come from. And a farmer would take the olives that grow on trees and put them into an oil press when the fruit was ripe and run heavy stones, cylinder stones, over the olives so that the pressure would release the oil without destroying it. And then it would drain out and they would capture that. And the first run was what we call extra virgin. That's where the, the oil would come up. That was used in the anointing oil that was used by the priest to anoint kings, prophets, and priests and used to anoint all the holy implements in the temple. So when the Bible talks about anointing, it's typified by the oil, and that type of language is used right here by Paul when he's talking about what he has experienced. You know, a lot of times people say, well, uh, apostles, you know, those are, you know, the archbishops and the apostles, and man, they're like at the top of the kingdom pyramid. Not so. When you read what Paul went through, Paul was beaten, whipped, shipwrecked, snake-bitten, left in the deep, lied about, betrayed, imprisoned, all of those things. And he described those as indicators that he was a true apostle. And when he's writing about it here, he says, yes, I have been hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. Because when you crush an olive, you don't get oil out of it. But when you press it at the right time, at the right ripeness with the right weight, it will release an oil or an anointing. It's actually interesting. Remember the night before Jesus went to the cross and he said to his disciples, come and pray with me. Where did he take them? He took them to the Garden of Gethsemane. Gethsemane means the place of pressing. It was an olive grove. And so when Jesus went and prayed, he actually went and prayed in the midst of all of these olive trees. In the Garden of Gethsemane, the Mount of Olives. So he's over there, and he's praying, and he's asking God, if there's any other way, Lord, take this cup from me, but nevertheless, not my will, but yours. And he's sweating great drops of blood. When I read that, it just, it makes my heart love Jesus even more. To think about, he knew what it was going to cost him to go to the cross, to redeem me and to redeem you. But he was willing to do it but it cost him. You see, Jesus prayed in the place of pressing. He was pressed, but it was because he was willing to go through the pressing that an anointing was released that actually brought about my redemption and your redemption. I don't know if you've ever felt pressed, ever felt like you were going through something. Maybe it's just been the last several months for you have been oppressing. You've seen people do things. You've even maybe experienced it yourself. You know, your, your temper's a little short or your fears and anxieties have risen up and frustrations. And you've maybe gone through some challenges or some experiences that you never thought that you would go through. And you've asked God, God, why are you allowing these things to happen to me? Why am I going through this? Why are we all going through this? Why are my kids going through this? Why is the church going through this? 
I've asked the Lord, Lord, why, what in the world's going on when we're not able to, you know, in the early days, we're not able to meet and, you know, people that used to come to church aren't coming to church. And the Lord just showed me, he says, there's a pressing. It's a press. Not a crushing, but a pressing. Well, Lord, what's the point of the pressing? It's just like the pressing of the olive releases new oil. The pressures that we go through are often what God uses to release new anointing in our life. Let me put it to you this way. What the enemy has meant to destroy you, God will actually use to reveal you. What the enemy means to destroy you, God will actually turn around and use it to reveal who you really are in those moments. You know, you can tell who somebody is not by their best moment in their life, but actually how they respond in the most difficult moments of their life. It's the pressing. And there is no other way to get a new anointing or a fresh anointing from the Lord, a new strength for a new day in a new season unless we go through oppressing. Those of you who maybe go to the gym, I know it's January and we all signed up for gym memberships and we've probably all failed to go. And uh, how many of you have already failed on your workout plans? All right, come on, it's church, you can't lie. Just anybody? Just me? Okay, I'm the only one. I swore I was gonna do 100 push-ups a day and uh, I did not. Okay, so what I always think is interesting is how many people buy gym memberships like in November and December or they buy that new piece of exercise equipment? The Bowflex, you know, that comes on TV. It's like, Bowflex, get this. And you see the guy is just ripped. And he's like doing that thing and he's sweating and he's glistening and then he's drinking the protein shake afterwards. And you're just like, yeah, I want to be that guy. And so you buy that piece of equipment, but by February, it's just used to dry your towels. And you sign up for that gym membership, but by March, you stop going. I mean, I've done that a, a bunch of times. I remember one time when I was at the gym, and it was January, and the guy who was there, you know, 5.30 in the morning every day, year-round, he's just a giant. He says, yeah, don't worry about all these people. They'll all be gone in a month. He says, so all the equipment will be open again. But the people who stay, who go to the gym at 5.30 in the morning, who work out, they're the ones who are stronger because they've torn down their muscles so that it could be rebuilt stronger. That's how we get stronger. No pain. That's right. That's true when it comes to an anointing and the ability to walk in a new anointing. But can I tell you, the world needs you and I to walk in a new anointing because Isaiah 10 says that it is the anointing that breaks the yoke. God wants to use you to be a deliverer. God wants to use you to have a word in season of encouragement for somebody. God wants to use you to make a disciple and to lead somebody closer to Jesus to share your faith and to lead many people to the Lord. God wants to use you to be a, a source of strength to people that are going through emotional turmoil and don't know how to respond. But before you can do that, there's got to be a pressing in your own life, and maybe you've already been in it, and you've thought, God, why are you allowing me to go through this? I want to just remind you, God's not doing it to crush you. He's doing it to reveal you. The real anointing that is in your heart and in your life. There's no other way around it. 
And the third thing is, if we're going to see God move in our day and our generation, it's going to require you and I pressing closer to him, asking him for new wine, asking for fresh oil, but also being willing to be carriers of old fire. Of old fire. Without old fire, there can be no new fire. We all like new technology. You know, new is always better, right? Newer, better, the new iPhone comes out, it's like, oh, I've got to upgrade to that thing. I grew up in a generation where the phone was on the wall. <laughs> Anybody remember that? We had an avocado green rotary phone in the kitchen on the wall with a 20-foot cable. <laughs> and that was so that if you wanted to talk to your girlfriend, you just took it and you sat in the bathroom around the corner, a long cable, you shut the door and you talk. There wasn't any cell phones. Think about this. If you're, how many of you are over 30? Raise your hand. Okay. If you're under 30, you're not going to get this. But we love you anyways. Okay, so have you ever wondered why when we answer the phone, we say, hello, like it's a question? It's because there was a day we didn't know who was on the phone. <laughs> we wanted them to say, oh, hi, this is Jim. Yeah, I'm calling for a meal. We already know now who's on the phone. It's like, we decide whether we're going to click it or take it. <laughs> Caller ID, right? Where it's like, oh, look at that. But we still go, hello? Like it's a surprise. That's old technology. Remember the phone? And then you mess it up. Do it all over again. Old technology. Somebody asked, when you were growing up, did you have a remote control? Yeah, it was my brother. <laughs> Change the channel. Move the rabbit ears around. If you don't know what rabbit ears, antennas, to get the one channel that was a little fuzzy that you would watch anyways. We didn't have 400 channels, 24-hour news cycle. There was a time when TV actually was not on. They showed Iwo Jima, played the national anthem, said broadcasting will begin at 5.30 a.m. My kids are like, what? That it really happened? I'm like, oh, yeah, there was a time where 2 in the morning, you turned the TV on, it was snow. And they're just like, what? I mean, if I'd have told them the aliens came down and played a baseball game against the Yankees, my kids would not have been more surprised. That's old technology. And I know that we've come a long way, but can I tell you that there's some things that we need from the past in order to move into God's future. We need old fire. Second Timothy chapter 1, it says, For this reason I remind you, this is Paul speaking to Timothy, he says, Fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands for the Spirit of God does not make us timid, but he gives us power, love, and self-discipline. So do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or of me, his prisoner, but rather join with me in suffering for the gospel for the, by the power of God. Paul says, fan into flame the gift of God. One, trans, one translation says, stir up the gift of God. Fan into flame. What's he talking about? Well, before modern technology gave you and I the ability to just go to our stove and turn on the burner and have a flame. 
in order to cook dinner. And before, you could just go to your fireplace and flip a switch and get a gas log that came on. Before all of those modern technological advances were given to us, fire was the most important part of a civilization or a society. If you had fire, you had life. And if you did not have fire, you died. And so within a nomadic culture, people that traveled around and traveled together on the move, nomadic people, one of the most vital roles and one of the most important people in a culture was what was called a fire carrier. Fire carrier was responsible for once we broke camp, we would take some of the embers from that fire and place them in flax and in wool or in sticks in a smoldering state to be able to transport the fire with us as we traveled to the next place. And when we got to the next place that we were to set up camp, you take the smoldering embers and you would place them among the wood or the the tinder and you would fan them back into flame so that you had fire to cook and to keep warm and to keep away predators. And if you lost the flame, you had to start all over again. There were no matches. There were no lighters. It was a tedious task. If you've ever seen a survivalist program, you see that making fire is not easy. Use flint, use cords, cables, and things. So you did not want to lose that flame. You needed old fire in order to start the new fire. And you had to depend on the carrier of the fire in order to fan it into flames. I believe with all of my heart that there are embers that are invisible to the naked eye from old fires that are still available for you and I to take with us into our future. I believe that we can become so distracted that we don't pay attention to them, but if we will have a heart that goes back and become students in our hunger and begin to study and look for them, we can find old flame embers in the Jesus People revival that took place, swept across America in the late 60s and the 70s, so much so that it made the cover of Time magazine on June 6, 1971, when a psychedelic picture of Jesus was on the cover of Time magazine, and it said, the Jesus Revolution. I believe that there are embers from the latter rain outpouring and the first and the second great awakening and the healing revivals of the 30s and the Pentecostal Azusa outpouring of 1901, the second great awakening and the Welsh revival. There are embers, there are truths, there are spiritual ashes that we can go back to in our hunger. And if we will be willing to, we can become carriers, transporters of those embers in our heart and collectively travel to the next place that God is calling us to. And when we get there, we will be able to fan into flame that old fire so that our kids and the next generation and people that right now are not in church because they don't know the Lord but are in our community and 
a month and a year from now, we'll come to know the Lord because we've set fires in place that draw those who are hungry, who are fearful, who are confused, who are searching. But what God is looking for are those who will say, I'll be a carrier of the old fire so that God can use me to set a new fire. I want to end with the words of a song, a hymn that William Booth wrote years ago, founder of the Salvation Army, a revivalist who God used greatly to transform his culture. He said, Thou Christ of burning, cleansing flame, send the fire. Thy blood-bought gift today we claim, send the fire today. Look down and see the waiting host. Give us the promised Holy Ghost. We want another Pentecost. Send the fire today. I would change one word in that. Instead of we want another Pentecost, I would say we need another Pentecost. And what God is looking for is those who would brush up their heart and become the tinder to hold the embers and say, God, use me. Use me to be a carrier of that old fire. I'm willing to go through the pressing for a new anointing, and I'm hungering and thirsting for a new wine from you. And what I want to do this morning is I want to pray for those who, in your heart, the Holy Spirit's already identifying you. Young, old, it doesn't matter, but there's something on the inside of you. He says, yes, this is what I was made for. This is what I want to devote my life to. I want to become a carrier of the fire in my generation. I want to be used by God. I want a new, fresh anointing in my life. And I want to be filled not with the wine of the spirit of this age, but I want to drink the new wine. I want to see God move in this generation. I want him to use me to accomplish that. I want to pray over you if that's you, but I want to invite you to stand to your feet. If you say before the Lord, I want to be a carrier of that new and the old. God, here am I. Use me. I want to consecrate this moment. I just want you to stand to your feet. Lord Jesus, here we stand in your presence. We ask you to place the flame of revival in our hearts. Place the flame, the embers are not visible in the natural, but spiritually that lie under the surface. All around us, in the heavenlies, Lord, place it in our hearts. Let those smoldering embers take root in us as we travel and as we journey to where you are leading us. Lord, I believe the greatest days of the church are still ahead of us. I believe the greatest days of this church are still ahead. Lord, light the flame in the hearts of each and every one of those who are standing and even those who are online today. Let there be a Holy Spirit impartation that changes us and transforms the trajectory of our lives from this point on. In Jesus' name.